The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Sirius XM's Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. That rumbling you'll hear this weekend is originating from the epicenter of not only the racing world, but arguably the entertainment mecca of North America. How hot is the second iteration of the Miami Formula One Grand Prix? Just as sizzling as the first one last year, when it drew hundreds of thousands to the area over a few days, set the party world on tilt, and made South Beach the go-to stop on the crowded global F1 calendar. Trying to build this racetrack in an 11-month period, essentially quite a task in itself. So many people have worked so hard at this. What we're looking forward to the most is seeing the lights go out and cars on track. Sure, that's Formula One, currently the darling of the sporting world. But it's not the only game in culturally rich Miami. Jay-Z and Beyonce can be found on stage there at the Hard Rock Stadium. So can Patrick Mahomes on a football field. And the college football national title game has been there, as well as world-class tennis and coming soon, the World Cup in 2026. Miami's Hard Rock Stadium has quickly become the bullseye of entertainment. Much of it led by Tom Garfinkel the stadium's architect of all things that are massive. Oh, and he also runs the NFL's Miami Dolphins. His titles are many. He is managing director of the Miami Grand Prix. He's also the vice chairman, CEO, and president of the Miami Dolphins and Hard Rock Stadium. What a thrill for a University of Colorado grad who left school with a communications degree, tended bar in Chicago, then went to work for a beer company, then Texaco, then never looked back. A spin through the racing world after an MBA at the University of Michigan eventually led to two major league baseball teams, first in Phoenix and then in San Diego, then on to the Dolphins with owner Stephen Ross. Ten years later, all metrics are through the roof. But first, it started with a roof. As Tom tells it, he was a young executive with the Dolphins, a team languishing in attendance as well as amenities at the former Joe Robbie Stadium. Wearing a suit, Tom climbed to the top level of the deserted stadium during a fall football game one day and cooked in the upper deck for five minutes watching the team flounder. The stadium needed a total revamp, and it needed a roof to improve the fan experience. It started there, but it led to numerous changes to the structure and the fan experience that improved everything in South Florida. At the same time, another dream was cooking. With his racing roots, Tom could envision a track that went around the stadium. Not just any racing circuit, though, a Formula One race in the center of a multicultural community. After more than half a decade and after postponed plans due to COVID, a Miami vision was born, racing around the stadium in the Florida sunshine with a fake Monaco-like yacht club, numerous entertainment options, and an explosion that rocked Formula One. Miami is sizzling hot, and this weekend it returns with just as much of a bang. Access to tickets has increased, multiple new clubs have been constructed, and the stage is set for F1 Miami Part 2. Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton, and Tom Garfinkel at the center of it all. So today we talk to Tom on the eve of the race, and coincidentally, the night of the NFL draft. His two worlds colliding. Tom Garfinkel and the quest to build the best venue in the world on Cars and Culture. Hi, I'm Tom Garfinkel. This is Cars and Culture with Jason Stunn. Well, I'm honored to have you on the program uh, today, given the gravity of not only what you have going on next week, but what you have going on today. Tom, thanks for being on the program. Happy to be here. Thanks, Jason. And when we talk about the gravity of it, we're, of course, not talking yet about the Miami race, but a small event called the NFL Draft. And this is a radio show focused on cars and culture. And we're going to get to the cars, Tom. But I can't imagine anything more culturally relevant than the place the draft has taken in our society draft parties cities that are overrun in detroit they've been talking about it for two years but what a cultural phenomena the draft has become 
Yeah, it really is. Uh, you know, when I came here, uh, having worked in baseball previously in, in 2013, my first NFL draft was in 2014. And it struck me that the the draft that year pulled over a 10 on cable, uh, 10 rating and the NBA playoffs with LeBron the same night was a two. So five times the television ratings uh, of the NBA playoffs for the draft. Uh, that was my first sort of foray into the cultural relevance and, and scope and scale of, of what is the NFL. And uh, I think you'll see Kansas City uh, having, you know, it's going to be phenomenal tonight, tomorrow. The NFL does a great job. Yeah, it is. It is fantastic. Is that just all about hope? Is that what drives all of this? Is that the the fans who cluster in the cities now just have this great hope that this is going to be our year and 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 we're we're adding to our own team rosters? Well, for sure, it is. It is in in some ways in sports we 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 sell hope. It is about hope, right? Yeah. And I think the NFL with with the competitive parity that we have. Uh, has you know everybody has everybody's undefeated right now and uh, and everybody has a chance to go out and win. Uh, there's I think more competitive parity than any other sport with the, with the economic structure we have in place and and the way the draft works. So being able to tr- trade up or down, trade picks and things, um, and just the strength of college football. You know I think a lot of these players are stars before they get drafted into the NFL because of college football, and that, that makes the draft a little more interesting than when you're drafting people that no one's ever heard of uh, and no one's ever watched play. So the idea that, you know, they've watched some of these young men play uh, college football and then they get excited about you know, who they may, who they may want for their team. So it's, it's exciting. The NFL's done a magnificent job of staying culturally relevant all year long, masterful, if you will, staying in the news. You were once part of America's favorite pastime in baseball. How did the NFL become America's favorite pastime? Well, that's a big question. Uh, you know, I can tell you growing up, you know, I think NFL films, you know, the growth of the Super Bowl, the economic model, which creates that competitive parity we were talking about, drafting college football players in. I, I just think the NFL has done a great job of growing the sport. Um, certainly things like fantasy football and, you know, just engagement is at an all time high. Those things helped. Um, it's a great sport for television. Uh, and just the sport itself, you know, it's, it's, I, I grew up playing football. I've always, it's always been my favorite sport growing up. Uh, I played football and basketball growing up and, uh, I played baseball when I was little. And then when I got into high school, you know, it was just playing basketball and football, but, uh, always love football and the game itself, what it is, how it, how it plays out the parody. I mean, so many of these games come down to the end of the game, uh, across the league, you know, so, um, you know, there's not a lot of games that are blowout games and boring to watch. These are all exciting games. You were in baseball for so long, and baseball indeed captivated America's attention for so long. Where did base? How did baseball lose its way, in your opinion? And 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 are we getting back now with the rule changes and the shortening of the games? I don't know that it, it lost its way as much as you know society has changed. I mean, baseball it's a different it's a different. Uh, uh, what's the right word? You know, baseball was a marathon, you know, you have 162 games. So it's a different tempo is the word I was looking for. Mm -hmm. Uh, football, the intensity of football, every game is, you know, is very intense. You have 17 games, baseball, you have 162. So I used to say when I was in baseball, it's like, you know, uh, one loss is like going three and out and punting in football on a relative numerical basis. Like, you know, you could, you could have a five game losing streak, in baseball, and it's like you're just down at the end of the half uh, in terms of you know what a, what a football game is. So, uh, you know, baseball has its uh, its romance and its charm, and you know, going eating a hot dog with your with your son or daughter, and you know, taking a summer night and taking it in, and the pace of the game, the the uh, the, the the beauty of the game is different than football. Uh, so I don't know that it lost its way. I just think they're very different sports. I think you know. In, in a lot of ways and, and different tempos and uh, and have and attract different people for different reasons. The shortening of the game. Uh, I'm amazed that it hasn't happened years earlier, right? I, I mean, it, it seemingly has paid off already this year, but well, there's culture, there's cultural inertia behind there's tradition. There's reasons why, you know, those things are difficult to change. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll see how it plays out and how it's executed. Um, you know, I'm certainly not an expert on, on those matters. And, uh, I watch more as a fan now and I still have a lot of friends in the game who I root for. And, and so, uh, uh, 
I, I think they're positive changes and they'll help, but ultimately it's going to be about, you know, uh, I think playoff baseball is exciting and, and I enjoy watching it and I enjoy rooting for my friends who, who are involved. Racing. Did you ever think you'd be involved in formula one racing? I mean, we're going to walk through your history a little bit, but outside of Chip Ganassi or IndyCar, Formula One was not on your resume prior to recently. <laughs> but now it you're right at the epicenter of it, Tom. Yeah, it wasn't. So, I, you know, having worked in auto racing for a long time prior to baseball, um, you know, I always loved open wheel racing. I always loved IndyCar. Uh, I, I really loved open wheel racing. And I hadn't been involved in Formula One, but I obviously knew a lot of people in Formula One. I knew about it and having worked in in motorsport in the United States. Um, when I first got here, uh, there's a street called 199th Avenue, which is out in front of the stadium and it kind of curves around and it's about a, it might be a 10 lane road. Um, and I remember the first time I got out on that street, having been to many racing schools and those sorts of things and driven formula Fords and other race cars, I got out there and said, this is a racetrack, you know, um, and started thinking about what that could look like. I know doing street races in the United States is, very difficult. I think 25 years ago, I was on the board of the Houston Grand Prix um, and learned a lot about what it what it is to operate a street race back then as a young executive at Texaco. And, and I remember uh, uh, just understanding the business interruption issues, the, the pedestrian bridges that had to go in place and the cost of those things and how it really just disrupted an urban environment. And uh, thinking about how you could put one around a stadium, which doesn't have those challenges, um, so, you know, a lot of that experience, a lot of that information, a lot of those experiences and a lot of that context sort of context sort of informed, you know, some of the ideas about what we could do here. So take me back to the original thinking and, and the impetus of all of this, where did it all start and how did it progress? How long ago did the, did the thinking that you would put a race into Miami, um, really begin? I think the first, the first conversations were really in 2017, um, uh, we met with Sean Bratches at the time at, at Formula One, and uh, Formula One was keen on putting a race in downtown Miami. And, um, you know, my first reaction was, you know, for the reasons I just described, this is going to be very difficult to do. I think, mm -hmm. you know, if if not impossible, I mean, you're trying to get 20,000 people to, you know, 19,000 people to a heat game and the traffic's bad getting in and out of that area. You've got the port the heat that you're going to disrupt. And this isn't just three days of disruption. It's three months of disruption every year because you've got to build grandstands, shut down roads, pave roads, do things. There is a lot of work that goes into preparing one of these Grand Prix. That level of disruption was just politically, economically, socially, you know, you've got loud cars, everything else. You got a lot of residences right there. Uh, was going to be very, very difficult. Um, and when I say residences, I mean high rise buildings with thousands of people that were going to be impacted. We're here. We've got residences nearby, uh, but they're further away. And, you know, um, and so it's different. So I, I think that um, uh, it, it just it seemed very difficult. But we kind of had to take it to its natural conclusion and go through that diligence process. Uh, ESPN or, or Formula One really wanted, you know, that the. the the blimp shot of the yachts in Miami and that sort of thing. And that was really important to them. And so we went through that process. You're also constrained by the roads. So it's difficult to build a competitive racetrack with, you know, overtaking and everything uh, when you're, you have all these constraints to what you can do with the roads. And so, you know, it was sort of, well, we could do it down at the stadium. And I kind of wrote on this whiteboard, here's all the positives and negatives. And Richard Cregan, who was with Formula One at the time, uh, kind of understood. And I took him around, walked him around the stadium, explained what it could be. And then uh, once we got to the point where we realized that that downtown was not going to be viable primarily for, you know, it just economically wasn't viable, the cost to do it there, the amount of people you could get there. Um, so we started exploring with F1, well, what if we put it around the stadium and here's what it could look like and here's how we would do it and brought Chase Carey out walked him around the top of the stadium, put cones out where the racetrack would go, drove him in a golf cart and helped him understand that vision. And he got that vision right away. And then we started working on a deal. We worked on that for a while, came to a place that made some sense and then had to do some more diligence with F1 on some of the costs that took some time. And then the pandemic hit. Yeah. And so that put everything on, 
you know, on the brakes on everything for about a year. And then uh, early 2021, uh, Stefano came on board and we started, we met and started sparking up those conversations, got on a few Zoom calls, hammered out a deal and, and had a deal in place by April of 2021 to, uh, to bring the Grand Prix to Miami. Did it meet your wildest expectations last year? Uh, you know, there were some things we fell short on that, uh, you know, it wasn't perfect, I would say, uh, but it was great. I mean, we, it, it was, it was a big challenge to get this thing built in 11 or 12 months that we had to do it. Right. You know, I think, I think without, uh, you know, post pandemic sort of supply chain challenges, a tight timeline, uh, and without having other events, it would have been difficult in and of itself, but doing that while still conducting Dolphins games, Miami Hurricane football games, a college football, you know, semi-championship, a rolling loud hip-hop festival, uh, and on and on and on, all of these other events that we have uh, presented other challenges that were even even greater. So uh, to, to just to pull the race off was a big feat, and I think we did a lot of things that hopefully were different and innovative and, and uh, a new standard for some hospitality and luxury things and, and other things that we did that were different than other races. So, um, you know, we're proud of that, and I think this year it's going to be even bigger and better. Well, you had your boats and your yachts anyway in the blimp shot. <laughs> well, that was a little bit of a, you know, I did tell them when we shifted from downtown to the stadium, I'm like, you're going to get your yachts. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And sure enough, we, we, we put their yachts in. And, you know, we had some fun with it. I think last year when people first arrived to the site, there were some international motorsports media who were kind of making fun of it, thinking we were trying to actually be Monaco or something. And I just kind of said, well, you know, we don't take ourselves as ser that seriously. This was actually intended to be fun because it's fake water where they, they're real yachts with fake water. Um, and so uh, although when we had the, the flooding here a few weeks ago, the the yacht club became real water, Good real water. <laughs> we've since, we've <laughs> since pumped all that water out, but, but uh, yeah, it was intended to be fun and be an interesting hospitality experience for people to be on the back of a boat and be able to watch the race cars go by, even though you're actually in car park, but you don't know it because we built there all these things around it to make it feel different. But it became, I mean, 250,000 fans for the weekend, 85,000 fans on race day, auto week magazine, said that the Grand Prix led off with a swagger and assuredness far beyond what its rookie status should have been. So what I do you see that? I gotta, I gotta find that. That's a great, <laughs> <laughs> right? So yeah, what, really what do you, what do you change for year two, Tom? We've changed a lot. So uh, to start with, you know, when we did, when we did the first year, we really only had enough time to build the garages permanently. And we had a temporary paddock club building on top of it that we had to build and then take all down. Uh, so this year we've built a permanent paddock club building, it's 170,000 square feet space on top of those garages uh, that we're, we're pretty proud of and excited to share with everybody. Um, and it actually connects back into the stadium now. So there's there's two levels of paddock club suites that have both have balcony spaces and then there's a roof deck uh, that has suites on top. And then that cuts back into the stadium club level. So it has a fully air conditioned hospitality area inside and has a roof deck outside with great vistas of the racetrack. So we're very excited to share that new paddock club building with everybody. Uh, we doubled the width of really all the pedestrian bridges. So last year we had pretty standard pedestrian bridges for racetracks. We had a few where we had some bottlenecks. We have a lot of places where people have to get across the racetrack. And we really want people to move seamlessly without any sort of, you know, waiting or gathering. So we doubled the width of those bridges uh, partly uh, to, to help alleviate that, but also anticipating maybe some attendance growth in the future. Uh, you know, we started at 85,000. We probably could have sold 150,000 tickets last year if we wanted to. But, you know, I was pretty dead set on, you know, I want this to be a great experience for people like ingress, egress, point of sale, bathrooms, the whole thing. Let's focus on getting that right and slowly grow it over time operationally as we get better operationally. And uh, this year will probably be, you know, 90,000 and grow it by about another 5,000. And slowly over time, we can, the demand is there to sell more tickets, but I want to make sure that we're providing a premium experience for all of our guests, you know, uh, not just the luxury ones. So those bridges will be widened. Uh, we changed the turn one structure to what we call the Vista at turn one. Now it's an air conditioned space with seats out front. There's a Casa Tua in there that's larger than last year. Uh, we added sweet product at the, above the turn one grand, grandstands. And just across the board, I really tried to upgrade the food and beverage experience and 
uh, you know, the experience at the beach club, we made, we made bigger, there's more cabanas now, and now they're right on top of the racetrack. Um, so just, uh, a lot of improvements and changes where we could. On the racing side of it, uh, Fernando Alonso, Lewis Hamilton were a couple of folks who were a little critical of the course. Did you make any changes to the course in order to get more side-by-side racing and opportunities to overtake? Yeah, I think that, you know, we talked to all the drivers, you know, it's interesting and the team principals. I mean, and it's interesting that um, they all have different opinions, right? So some thought it was great. Some thought it was okay. Some didn't like it. Um, and that's, you know, talking to Christian Horner, he said, that's going to be the case at every racetrack. Um, you know, you're going to have differing opinions about things. I think the general consensus was that the layout, the actual course itself, was well received by the drivers. They actually liked the race course. It was challenging. It had a lot of different things going on. The one area in turn sort of 15 where we had to kind of to slow the cars down because of the lack of runoff up there for safety reasons, it, it creates this one, you know, kind of turn that some of the drivers didn't love. Um, and that area, we, we, we changed it a little bit where uh, the apex is a little shorter now. It's going to be a little quicker through there and a little, it's not going to slow them down quite as much. So it's, it's, it, there's subtle changes, but I think, uh, I think it's, it's, it's really George Russell and another driver who gave us some feedback on that, that we listened to and, and adjusted to that specifically. Um, and then the, the bigger issue last year, really with the racetrack wasn't the layout as much as the surface itself. So we, right. you know, the surface wasn't ideal. I think, um, we probably burnished the racetrack too much. There was some other things going on with the aggregate. And so, um, the racetrack itself was, was, uh, was coming up a little bit. So there were, there were marbles that weren't rubber marbles. They were actually aggregate mar- marbles. So it was tough to get out of the racing line in certain areas of the racetrack. So at great expense, we, you know, we didn't really need to, we could have patched up a couple of those areas and, and raced again this year, but I just decided that, uh, we want to get it right. We want it to be perfect. And so we repaved the entire racetrack, uh, used Tokyo this time and went out there and just really just repaved the whole racetrack. So the aggregate's different. The whole top layer, the three inches of the last lift is totally different. And it's a brand new racetrack and, and excited to see, uh, excited to see how it races and hopefully there's more overtaking. Boy, before all of this, Tom, I mean, you were worried about maybe who your starting quarterback was going to be, um, <laughs> maybe be negotiating contracts. And now you're talking <laughs> like a, a, a racing, um, you know, aficionado, at, at least on, on your way to, to understanding more of the, um, the intricacies of, of running a circuit. Well, to have a, to have a bit of a racing background was helpful, but I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, look, I don't, I don't decide who the starting quarterback is and, and, uh, and I don't, I don't make the draft picks. So, you know, we have a great general manager and Chris Greer runs our football operations and Mike McDaniel, our head coach is doing a fantastic job. And, you know, I, I, I'll be in the draft room tonight. I'm excited about it. Uh, uh, well, we don't have any picks tonight, but I'm excited about tomorrow. And uh, I know the process that the, these guys undergo to evaluate the players and, and make the right picks is a good one. I, I ride along in that process often sit in meetings and listen and ask questions and, uh, and have a lot of confidence in them and their leadership. So uh, excited about that. And it's the same kind of thing with, with racing, you know, you hire great people, you ask good questions, you, you try to provide them as many support resources as you can, and uh, certainly get involved in the big decisions. If we're going to invest millions of dollars to repave the racetrack, I'm going to, I'm going to make that decision. And, and, uh, and so we did and, and, and excited about, you know, very excited about what, what we're going to be doing here in 10 days. There's a lot of people who've worked really hard and uh, just can't control the weather. So praying for great weather and, and, and hope everybody has a great weekend. Formula One in America, you know, you mentioned it earlier. F1 tried in Detroit, streets of Detroit. Uh, they tried in Phoenix in the summer, unbelievably. Somebody <laughs> made that decision. Um, they redesigned the track at Indianapolis, and there was an enormous amount of effort put into turning the Indy 500, uh, uh, the infield, into a bit of a road course to some extent. And not long ago, Thanks to flooding and weather and other issues, Austin was even on the ropes in America. Now we're talking about the second iteration of this race. This has become the go-to place. And of course, Vegas at the end of the year. It's a complete change in America, right, Tom? How did we get here? Well, I'll give Liberty Media, Greg Maffei, uh, 
you know, Chase Carey, certainly Stefano now, a ton of credit. I think they've done a fantastic job of growing the sport. Um, you know, the Concord Agreement working towards more competitive parity, uh, which, you know, this year with the new cars from last year and some things, you know, Red Bull seems to have quite an advantage. But I think, you know, that'll work itself out over time with, with the way the Concord Agreement is set up and the new specs coming after. I don't remember how many races, but um, uh you know, they've just done a great job with it. You know, certainly the Netflix series, you know, gets a lot of credit for, for helping grow the sport throughout the world and in the United States. And I think deserves credit from the standpoint that there's, you know, these things were happening in the sport. It's just, they're doing a, a better job of telling those stories now in a compelling way. And, but I wouldn't say it's exclusively Netflix. I'd say it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of things going on that formula one is doing you know, uh, that Chase certainly did a great job, you know, through the pandemic and with the Concord Agreement. I mean, he's a brilliant diplomat and leader. And then Stefano coming in and with his experience, you know, in the sport and his relationships in the sport, his tireless work ethic, he's a brilliant guy. Uh, what he's doing and taking it to that next level uh, is really um, impressive. So uh, they're just doing a great job with it. And uh, and we're lucky to, you know, feel, feel fortunate to be a part of that. Uh, the timing was good. I always knew Formula One was, you know, in my mind, the biggest sport in the world. And so to bring it here was something I, I wanted to do before this growth happened. Uh, and then, you know, the job that they've done with the sport, it just helps that. I think that the growth of that brand globally and also in the United States combined with what's happening in Miami, uh, you know, you're talking about, two of the greatest brands going on right now combined at the same time. It was just kind of magic last year and, and, and hopefully it will be this year as well. What an interesting place for you to be. And I want to talk a little bit about your history because you do have a sports background that just goes beyond the business stuff that you've done before your freshman year at university of Colorado and Boulder, you were going to try to make the football team as a walk-on. And then you got to campus and you bumped into an individual named Oakland Salavea. Yeah, you've done your research. Yeah. <laughs> You're at Farrand Hall on campus, and you said he was 6'6, 250, faster than me, and a lot stronger. And I realized I wasn't going to be a quarterback. <laughs> yeah, he was 6'6, 235. He ran a 4'8. I was about 6'2, 195. I ran a 4'8. And, uh, and I played, you know, at that time, Colorado had, you know, was running the option, and the quarterbacks ran 4'4s four and, and uh, Darian Hagan. And, just gotten there. And so I was either going to be a really small tight end or a really slow wide receiver. Uh, I basically would have been Rudy um, <laughs> trying to make, trying to make the team. And uh, yeah, I, I took one look at Oakland in my dorm. I said, I think if that guy hit me, he'd break me in half. So, uh, <laughs> but you played football. You just played for Kappa Sigma, right? <laughs> Man, who have you been talking to? <laughs> yeah, I was a uh, I was a bad quarterback on a flag football team. Yeah, so it was fun. <laughs> we had a great time. So you go through you switch from art to communications, and then you move to Chicago with a bunch of buddies and uh, bartending. Right, uh, you, you go into bartending, and and a couple of years later, you're not only bartending, but you're running three bars. Yeah, hiring people, firing people, negotiating beer deals, doing marketing campaigns, and then all of a sudden, you're working in the beer industry. What was that like? You're working for Miller Brewing. Yeah, it was fun. So, you know, I, you know, I started out sleeping on a friend's couch in Chicago, trying to find a job in sports and just kind of morphed into, the, into working in these bars to just try to make a living and then realized, you know, I need to be, I had ideas and I need to learn. And it was really great experience, um, you know, managing those businesses and, um, and then moving into beer in North Carolina, I think, um, you know, it was just kind of a natural progression trying to work towards sports, frankly. You know, obviously beer does a lot of marketing in sports. And I was in North Carolina uh, working in the market area there when the Panthers were brand new playing at Clemson Stadium in 1995 and um, involved in that. And then that was sort of my first foray into motorsports was going to my first race was actually a NASCAR race at North Wilkesboro Speedway uh, in North Carolina which was quite an experience. Uh, I felt like I had gone back in, in time to uh, <laughs> you know, the scene in Smokey and the Bandit, the right. first one when they're racing trucks, you know, I think that might've been, I think that might've been in Georgia, but um, it was quite an experience. And so, and so started doing that and, 
you know, got involved, you know, in the marketing of that market area. And it really came down to, you know, I was fortunate to get promoted a couple of times and now I'm quickly running marketing for sort of three states and, and things were going well at Miller. And then someone I knew had gotten a job at Texaco and was managing their, all their sponsorships and asked me if I wanted to come run motorsport sponsorships at Texaco in New York. And, um, you know, it was a little closer to sports. It was New York City. So I decided to, to, even though things were going great at Miller and I had a lot of support and great mentors and leaders there I'd learned from, moved up to New York City and, and went to work at Texaco uh, in 1997. And uh, my first day on the job was at the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament in New York. And then we flew out in September and then we flew out to uh, Monterey, California, to Laguna Seca to go to the race uh, and was at a dinner with Mario and Michael Andretti and we're standing there and I'm now in auto racing. So, hmm. uh, was at Texaco for a couple of years and then, and then, uh, I was fortunate to get promoted there a couple of times and then left to go get my MBA at the university of Michigan. So that was my first foray into motorsports was in North Carolina. And then in, at the time, which, what was cart and NASCAR with, with Robert right. Gates racing as well. We should mention too that you were just, I think, a year or two in a Texaco, and um, appropriately, uh, ironically, you meet your wife at the Miami Grand Prix. Yeah, it's ironic now, isn't it? Uh, so my wife Allison was working for Newman Haas Racing, who we sponsored, and uh, uh, she, she had the you know, there's a superstition that you know, there's an envelope full of the stickers to get into the winner circle. And you don't open that envelope until you cross the finish line for superstitious reasons. So every team gets one. And then when you win, you open it. And if you don't, you throw it away. And uh, she had that envelope. So she was the person standing in front of the, the winner circle, uh, you know, the podium basically area saying, you know, okay, here comes Paul Newman. Here's your sticker. Here comes Mario Andretti. Here's your sticker. And then I, here comes me walking up this uh, 29 year old kid running sponsorships for Texaco. And, and I said, you know, can I, can I get one of those please? And she's like, who are you? You know, and she gives me one. I'm like, who's this person? You know? So that was the first time we met. I actually have a picture of that day in the winter circle with Paul and Michael and a couple other people and myself in the winter circle. Uh, and it says uh, Miami Grand Prix on it. It was at Homestead Speedway. And I have that in my office. That's the day I met my wife. So yeah, kind of funny the racing world is a dynamic one as well, very small world. And, you know, there you are right in the, in the midst of it. And then you go to the baseball world after that. What was that transition like for you? You know, it was interesting. I mean, so, you know, I went to Texaco, I went to Michigan, got my MBA, went to work with Ganassi racing and NASCAR and IndyCar for about five years, learned a ton there from folks at target and, and, and other places. And, and then went into baseball, um, you know, just with the confidence that, you know, I don't know anybody in baseball, but I'll figure this out somehow. And uh, uh, was at the Diamondbacks for a couple of years and then and then went over the Padres. And, and uh, you know, it's kind of challenging. We had three owners, I think, in four and a half years I was at the Padres. But, you know, certainly learned a lot, met a lot of great people, um, enjoyed the game, enjoyed, you know, being a part of that culture and that group of people. And, and then uh, learned a lot. But, you know, certainly – you know, with three different owners in four and a half years, that presents all kinds of challenges. And uh, uh, my family, we love San Diego. We love living there. It's a great place to live, hard place to leave. Uh, but the opportunity came along in Miami and, uh, you know, didn't look back. It's been, a, it's been a great experience. So you, you go to the Ross School of Business at Michigan, and then you're hired by Stephen Ross, <laughs> the chairman of the Dolphins. Yeah. That, that uh, had to be surreal to some extent. It was, I think, you know, ironically, so when I was there, it was called the Michigan Business School. I graduated in 01 with my MBA, and I think Steve uh, put his name on the school in, I think, 04. Uh, and I hadn't met him. I met him in 09. When I was at the Diamondbacks, ironically, before I went to the Padres, I actually interviewed, Steve had just bought the team, and I interviewed with him for this job. And uh, it's kind of a long story, but long story short, uh, I didn't think I was going to get to go to the Padres. Uh, There's you know, permission has to be granted and all this kind of stuff. And, and then uh, commissioner Sela got involved and, and I was actually able to, I was granted permission to interview with the Padres and serve out of loyalty to those people and the opportunity to go to San Diego and everything else. I kind of pulled myself out of the, I had met Steve once for this job and I kind of pulled myself out of the process um, and went to San Diego. And then four and a half years later, 
you know, I was sitting in the same office interviewing with the same man for the same job. And he says, you know, well, you, you know, you pulled yourself out of the process last time, you know, I, I was going to offer you the job. You should have just taken it then. You know, I said, well, ironically, I think, uh, I think you're probably going to be a better owner now four and a half years later. And I'm certainly going to be a better CEO than I would have been four and a half years ago. And so, you know, sometimes fate has its way of making things work out and uh, it's all worked out great. 10 years with the Dolphins. It's an eternity in major sports. <laughs> it's eternity for me. I hadn't lived anywhere in my life longer than six years. And that was seventh grade through high school. So uh, in my adult life, I hadn't lived anywhere longer than five years. So to be here 10 has been, has been a real blessing. And, you know, it's really because of Steve. I mean, I think, you know, you've got a person here who has the, you know, gives me the, the autonomy and the resources and, and invests in big ideas. And he's a great person and he's supportive and he, he loves big thinking and he's a lot of fun to be with. And so, you know, when you get in a situation like that, you know, why leave? Right. So it's, it's been going great. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with Tom Garfinkel, managing director of the Miami Grand Prix, vice chairman, CEO and president of the Miami Dolphins and Hard Rock Stadium. And to see my interview with Tom, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel, like and subscribe to see nearly 100 interviews. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep. As technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars. From industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Now the continuation of my conversation with Tom Garfinkel, Managing Director of the Miami Grand Prix and Vice Chairman, CEO, and President of the Miami Dolphins and Hard Rock Stadium. And to see my interview with Tom, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see nearly 100 interviews. Is it hard to have longevity in a sport that really demands instant success? I mean, you're, you're constantly being reevaluated, right? Your teams are being reevaluated. Decisions are being reevaluated. The business of pro sports is hard, right, Tom? Goes yeah, it is hard. It, it is hard. But I, I think, look, you know, from my point of view, it's, it's kind of a blessing and a curse. Like, I don't run football operations, so it's right. a blessing and a curse. There's a lot of things I, you know, it gets frustrating along the way if there's things you think you would do differently. At the same time, you know, because I don't make those decisions, I'm not accountable for them. So, you know, I there's part of me that says, wants to say, okay, let me make all those decisions and I'll be accountable for the the outcomes. Um, but you know, at the same time, it's kind of, you know, it creates more longevity if you just focus on the business. So I've been very lucky. And again, we've got a great leadership team here running football operations that, uh, with Chris and Mike and, and Brandon Shore, who runs our administration and our contracts and negotiates those contracts with player agents and the cap and all that stuff. Uh, so it's a great team. They're all working well together. We've got a great roster. We're very excited about this year. And I think we're, uh, finally getting it right, you know, on the football field. And I, I think we're really excited about what we can do this year from a business standpoint, you know, we've grown the business every year uh, since I've been here. We've got a great team of people. Uh, we continue to grow both the Dolphins business and the other businesses around it. Uh, you know, I don't know of another venue really in the world that has, <clears throat> can say they have, you know, Jay-Z, Beyonce, Coldplay, <clears throat> Patrick Mahomes, uh, and Tua Tungavaloa and, uh, uh, Serena and Venus and Roger Federer and Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen oh, wow. and, uh, you know, Floyd Mayweather and, uh, you know, so on and on and on that has all these people in one venue performing at, at different times. So uh, to have a Formula One race, to have Miami Open tennis, to have the NFL national championship games, Super Bowls, and now the World Cup coming in 26. Let's not forget about Messi and Neymar being here for the El Clasico in 17. And so, uh, it's been a lot of fun, you know, to be able to host those types of events on the world stage uh, makes this a special place to be. I want, part I want to talk about World Cup for a second, because if, if, we, if we talk culture, um, there, there is no larger sport in the world. And the cultural impact is uh, is enormous. And Hard Rock Stadium is going to play host to the to the FIFA World Cup in 26. Miami's one of 11 U.S. cities, 16 in North America that will host those matches. What is landing arguably the premier global sporting event in your backyard mean for you in the city of Miami? Well, it'll be great for the city of Miami. I mean, Miami is a dynamic place right now, maybe the most dynamic economy in the world. I think there's a, there's a migration of people moving here right now. That's um, I think it's going to be studied in universities. I call it the great migration the people that are moving here uh, 
the, the wealth migration that's coming here is really pretty astounding. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, I think it bodes well. We're a truly international city, you know, I think it, and, and, and it goes across Europe, across Latin America. This is a very diverse, very uh, culturally diverse place with, you know, I kind of call it a curator of culture in a lot of ways, whether it's music, art, fashion, food and hospitality, sports. Uh, Miami is a very dynamic place right now. And I can't think of a better place to host, you know, the World Cup than Miami from that standpoint. So we're excited about it. 26, well, we have the national championship that year uh, and the World Cup and a Formula One race and international tennis and all those things at the same time. So it'll be a, it'll be a challenging, but very fun no, year. No one sleeps at Hard Rock Stadium, Tom. Actually, some people do sleep at Hard Rock Stadium. Well, they uh, sleep at the stadium, right? Especially, especially <laughs> these last couple of weeks, getting the final details done for the race. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, we it's it's a busy place. We have a lot of great people that work really hard, and uh, it's a great team. You know, it's a very collaborative culture. It's a very um, it's a very strong work ethic type of culture, and it's a very personal culture. You know, we care about people. Uh, you know, one of our very senior executives, who's a very important executive to everything that we do, just had a, a bit of a family emergency and had to leave a couple of days ago. And he's critical to the operations here. But the team that he's built is so great that, we'll, you know, we'll be, like, go take care of your family and yeah. don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Um, you know, we'll, we'll be fine because we've got a great team of people here. And so he needs to go focus on his family. So we try to focus on those things a lot, too. And and uh but it's fun. You know, people here, I think, know that they're part of something special, uh, mostly when they just look at the room around the room at their teammates. And then when you stand up, you know, we had a meeting yesterday morning, kind of an all staff Formula One meeting at the Palm Club, which is this very luxury space that we've created that looks out at really the tennis campus and, and a big part of the racetrack on the south side of campus. And I just said, look out at this, look out at what you, what you built, you know, and uh, in fact, that used to be a parking lot where my now 19-year-old son learned how to drive when he was 15, four years ago. I took him out there and taught him how to drive in that parking lot. And it's not a parking lot anymore. <laughs> you know, now it's a... There are other drivers it's, now. <laughs> fully entertain, it's an entertainment campus with a gondola and fountains and racetrack and tennis courts and everything. And it used to be a parking lot where I taught my son to drive not that long ago. So uh, proud of the team and, and what they built. And I think they know they're part of something pretty cool. So. Well, Tom, I remember when it was Joe Robbie Stadium and it was just another stadium in the NFL calendar. And now it's, yeah. I mean, you mentioned it's the relocation of the Miami Open. It's, uh, you know, mentioned earlier, July of 17, Real Madrid, Barcelona, $600 million in suite contracts and sponsorships that you presided over the sale of. And then in 19, just ahead of COVID, um, record attendance numbers, increased total revenue by nearly 25%. I, I mean, it's a total, as you said, it's a Ross business school case study. Well, um, I had a goal, you know, Larry Lachino doubled revenue at the Red Sox in 10 years when he was there. So uh, when I got here and Larry's a friend and, and uh, you know, a bit of a mentor, you know, he, he was very generous to me when I was a young president at the Padres in baseball. And, and, uh, and so I got here and, you know, we were, I think, last in the league in profitability. We were actually had negative EBITDA at the time, which was, I think we were the only team with negative EBITDA. Uh, we were, the tickets, the ticket, the stadium was half empty. I think we were 30th in ticket sales. Um, I think we were fifth in operating, fifth in operating expenses and 30th in revenue. So uh, we actually doubled revenue, local controllable revenue here in, in the first eight years. So that was my, I never told Larry that, but that <laughs> he was my bar. So I wanted to beat that. And we, we doubled local revenue in eight years, uh, not counting the race, just, you know, with the dolphins. And, uh, and so it's been a great, it's been a great ride. It's been a lot of fun. The business results have been great. We're, we're very fortunate. We have a great fan base. Uh, but most importantly, you know, it's really because of Steve's commitment. I mean, you're talking about someone who put to start $550 million of private dollars into renovating the stadium. When I got here, it was a 28 year old stadium with, you know, uh, uh, faded orange seats. And, you know, I went up in the North side of the stadium and I had my suit and tie on for a game and I go out there and I, I just want to see what it was like to sit in the upper deck what the views were when I first got here. And it was 95 degrees and sunny and humid. And I sat there for about five minutes and I was absolutely covered like I, someone dumped a bottle of you know, bucket of water on me 
uh, it was so hot. And I said, I don't know why anybody would come to a game here. And sit you wrote here. Them in, I don't care how good of a fan you are. And so it was one of those things like we, we need to put this canopy on the stadium and this, the longer we wait, the, you know, the more money we're costing ourselves and opportunity costs, construction costs are going up. Let's just pay for it and go do it and convince Steve to do that. And to his great credit and his great financial commitment, you know, we were able to do that. And uh, what you see out there is a vision, I think, that Steve had before I got here uh, to create a global entertainment destination uh, out of this place. And, uh, you know, proud to say, I think now with Formula One and everything else, I think we've accomplished that. But it's it's really in, in great in great part, if not, you know, wholly uh, a result of his commitment and his vision. All right, it's NFL draft day, so just a couple more minutes left because you've got to head to the war room at some stage. Your your head coach, Mike McDaniel, typically, I would say, wins the press conference. He's notoriously funny. He told uh, Chicago quarterback Justin Fields to stop running the ball during a game when he was scrambling so well. <laughs> what do you like about your coach, and does he really – I think he embodies the culture that you're trying to create here, doesn't he? He really does. I mean, I, look, what I – Mike is genuinely that funny. Like when you see him in a press conference, he's just being himself. Uh, th there's no act. That's, that's, <laughs> that's who he is, is sitting in my office and that's just who he is every day. So he is, uh, he is hilarious uh, in, in a really smart way. Uh, but what I like best about Mike is like, like Mike's Mike thinks differently. Uh, Mike is a, an innovator uh, and he's just a, he's a genuinely good person. You know, he's, he's not, uh, he cares about his players. He cares about his coaching staff. He's uh, he's a human being. He's genuine. He's authentic. He's real. Uh, and he thinks differently. So in the interview process, you know, when we're talking about things, it's, this league tends to, you know, there's a lot of movement of coaches and scouts and things. There's a lot of common practices and the way things, they do things. There's a lot of um, watching film and seeing how somebody else did it and kind of copying that. Mike's philosophy was to get in a room and with smart people and, and try to come up with a new way to do things and solve problems. And, you know, that really resonated with me. I think, I think players are very different than they were even five years ago. You know, you've got NIL transfer portal, the impact of the pandemic on, on isolation and how people communicate. And there's just, there's a fundamental shift. I mean, remember these are young men that come in at 21, 22 years old into these organizations as professionals. And, Mike is very good about explaining the why to them. You know, I think there's a historical context of coaches in the NFL kind of get in line and do what I tell you to do. Um, and there's a tree, a coaching tree of people that learn how to do it that way. Mike comes in and, and sort of sits down and says, you know, with a player and says, look, I know here's your personal goals. Here's how you're going to, here's, here's how I'm going to help you accomplish those goals, but here's what I need from you to do that. Here's why it benefits you. And has those conversations and the players buy in more because they understand that he's being genuine and he's actually explaining it to them uh, for the first time in 10 seasons, you know, uh, used to be, I'd be on the second floor of the building where the, all the offices are. And the only time I'd see players up there is if they were getting disciplined or cut. Um, you know, now I sit in my office here. I'm at, obviously at the training facility. I have office here and one at the stadium. And when I'm here, uh, you know, I'll see players walk by my office all the time, wave, say hello. And they're up on the second floor, just popping into coaches' offices, watching film, talking about football. So that's definitely a cultural shift and, and something he gets a lot of credit for. And, you know, he's, he's great to be around. He's very collaborative with Chris. There's no ego. There's no insecurity. There's no, uh, you know, there's a lot of trust and collaboration going on in this building right now. And that's that's what I believe in. So, Final thing on racing. Vegas is obviously making a big splash this year. Do those, do both events help each other or are they, is it a race to outdo each other? You know, for me, it's one of those all ships rise with a rising tide thing. I think the more, you know, uh, successful races there are in the United States, the more the sport grows, the more fans love the sport. There's plenty of room for particularly in May and November, uh, you know, and Austin as well, there's plenty of room for fans to attend different races and have different experiences. I think, you know, Austin is, is, is one type of event. It's very different than our event. You know, I, we didn't try to be Austin or be, you know, Silverstone. We try to be Miami and be authentically Miami. And I think Vegas will be that Vegas will be different. It's going to be a night race in November on the strip. That's going to be a lot different than being in Miami 
and what we do here. So I think those differences are exciting for fans. And uh, if you're a fan, you should attend uh, both. I mean, it's, you know, they're going to be different experiences. You're going to have the most impressive machines in the world racing around with these, these incredible uh, drivers driving them around and the stories and the people and the competitiveness. Uh, But the experiences around it will all be different and exciting. So I'm excited for it. I think it's, I think it's great for everybody. You're going to take a moment and stop over the course of the weekend and say, okay, we did it. And when, when, when will that occur and where will you be when you have that moment? I definitely have those moments. Um, you know, last year, it'll probably be similar to last year. There was, there was really, well, there was, a, there were several, but I think the first moment for me last year was just seeing something before it was built just seeing that there was going to be, you know, when you look at a parking lot, you think there's going to be formula one cars racing around here with grandstands and 85,000 people and all these things. And you envision it in your head and you can see it and people look at you like you're crazy. The first time the cars took the track on uh, P one on Friday last year, standing on top of race control and watching those cars, you know, come out onto the racetrack was a very emotional moment last year. Um, You know, certainly the start of the race, is another one. Um, and, uh, you know, there were several, I think this year, uh, you know, when the teams, when everyone arrives on Friday into the new paddock club and just kind of seeing their reaction to how different it is from last year. And hopefully, you know, we, we, we put a lot of investment into it, a lot of thought into it and we really want it to be a new standard for what a paddock club can be. And so seeing people experience that and hopefully appreciate that is going to be fun. And then, and then just uh, the start of the race from the from the top of that paddock club building. There's a little part on the, the southeast corner where we'll be, we'll be watching the start of the race, watching the cars going to turn one. Um, you know that'll be a great moment as well. Wonderful! Congratulations! It's year two, and congratulations on uh, an NFL draft as well. And uh, best of luck on putting the team together for the next iteration of the Dolphins. But Tom, it's been so wonderful to be with you. Thank you for being on the program. Thank you very much, Jason. I really appreciate it. It's been fun to be here. Thank you. Thanks again to my guest today, Tom Garfinkel, Managing Director of the Miami Grand Prix and Vice Chairman, CEO, and President of the Miami Dolphins and Hard Rock Stadium. And to see my interview with Tom, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see nearly 100 interviews. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. Follow us on LinkedIn or on Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM and on Twitter at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. We'll see you down the road. Do you have concerns about your heart health? Yeah. We've got a doc for that. Have questions about men's health, women's health, and everyday health? Sure. We've got a doc for that. Really? Interested in improving your exercise and eating routine? Yeah. We've got a doc for that. Hmm. A nurse practitioner and a registered dietitian, too. Wow. Sirius XM's Doctor Radio. Your access to top doctors and health professionals every day. No copay, no appointment necessary. Sirius XM 110. Who knew? You're listening to Sirius XM Business Radio. Channel 132.